Welcome to the Profitable Steward Podcast with Jared Sorensen. In this series, we'll learn and explore regenerative agriculture principles. Through practices that improve soil health, animal health, and good stewardship, we are working to help you increase your productivity and profitability. Join us in learning from successful farm and ranch experts who share stories of growth from their fields to help your fields grow strong. Here is your host, Jared Sorensen. Everyone, welcome to the uh, Profitable Steward podcast and the Profitable Regeneration webinar series. We are very grateful to have Seth Itzkan from Soil for Climate here with us today. Um, we just want to help the individuals and families to find answers. We're living in some very challenging times with what's gone on the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's kind of like why even turn on the news? Um, you never know what you're going to be faced with when you do that. Uh, but the one thing that we know in agriculture is that the sun came up this morning. Uh, even though plants underneath the snow are not photosynthesizing in Williams Greenhouse, they are. Things are going to continue to grow and uh, we can we can count on a few things like that. And so I think we're just very blessed to be grounded in agriculture. And I like William's background, the hay bales, that reminds us that someday we will see spring. Um, we're coming out of a very challenging winter and we're not out of it yet. We're not out of the woods. I mean, this is almost the first of April and um, uh, still uh, lots of snow on the ground, lots of snow drifts here in northeastern Nevada, which is not um, typical for us. So bottom line is climate is changing. And as I said on my TikTok video today, um, I used to be a climate denier, climate change denier. And, uh, you know, I, I, it bugs me and William and I have these conversations a lot that um, laced within the message of climate change is an agenda. I don't agree with many parts of the agenda to move towards more overreach of government and government agencies. But I don't think we can deny the fact that things are changing. We went from an extreme record-breaking drought last year to a record-breaking snowfall here in Elko County this year. So those extremes are getting more extreme. They're getting more frequent. What are the causes of that? Um, we're going to dive a little bit into the science with with Seth here today. Uh, but more importantly, I think for me is what are the solutions that we have, especially as agriculturalists? Um, what can we do? What's within our power? And why do we want to do that? So those are some of the questions that we feel like are going to be answered. Seth, welcome to the program today. It's an honor to have you here with us. Thank you, Jared. It's, a, it's an honor and pleasure to be here with you and your group. So um, tell us a little bit about what got you started into the soil health movement, and um, you have been influential worldwide. Um, I think I was introduced to your work through DD Purse House, and um, have followed you since on social media, um, and just see that you are recognized as kind of one of the worldwide leaders when it comes to um, to. I'll not only regenerative agriculture, but I mean, you're going and speaking to groups of individuals who are um, in the high ups in the political arenas as well. So maybe give us a little bit of a context for what brings you to this space. Sure, it's my pleasure. But, you know, even before I do, let me say really from the bottom of my heart that just to be with this community here um, you've assembled is really um it's it's the reward, frankly, for the work I do. Um, a lot of what I do is tedious and frustrating, um, you know, and um, the reward, frankly, is being with the producers and the practitioners and the people who are working on the ground. Um, I, I'm not that. I'm a, I'm a scholar and an advocate and, and an activist and a policy wonk. Um, and, uh, you know, I need, I need to be in community with real producers, <laughs> you know, to stay alive, frankly. So really, uh, you're, you're the heroes to me. 
I am not a producer. I'm a I'm a wonk. Um, so anyway, getting back to the background, um, I come from the city, New York, Boston area, Northeast United States. Um, went to college, went to engineering. I have an engineering computer programming background, not agriculture at all. I grew up believing all the unfortunate negative stereotypes about agriculture, that it's it's backward, it's the old way of doing things. We're beyond that. I'm embarrassed um, that I held those beliefs, but as you know, it's an unfortunate um it's an unfortunate reality of you know how things are perceived now. Um, but fortunately, I was able to get beyond that and really enjoy the beauty of land and of the people who are working on land. And so thank God for that. Um, and, um, you know, so I was what you might call a traditional climate activist, which was rallying against, you know, the big... Um, the oil and the coal producers. And that's still that's still an essential part of what has to happen. But there's a whole nother side of it now, which is what's called drawdown, which is actually taking carbon out of the air and um and putting it in the ground where it should be. And um and there are ways of cooling the planet. You know, as you can see in the picture behind me in my virtual background there, um, it's the same spot. Uh, that picture, those two pictures were taken at the Africa Center for Holistic Management in Zimbabwe. Exactly the same spot. I think it's a 10-year, 2014, 2004. Yeah. Yeah, it's a 10-year transition through the holistic plan grazing. And that the one on the right, you see that guy by the tree, that's me. So these are all a lot of times you'll see pictures. These are spots I've been to or I've taken the pictures myself. Um so obviously the spot on the right is cooler anyway. Like, you know, if you were there with a thermometer measuring the temperature of the ground, it's just literally cooler. Never mind the fact that there's obviously more carbon in the soil. It's actually just cooler because of the effect of the plants, you know, um, the photo of evaporation, the water coming off the leaves creates a profound cooling effect. So, um, you know, the whole thing about whether or not you believe in global warming, I mean, it sort of doesn't matter. No one is doing this. Alan Savory didn't invent holistic plan management because he cared about global warming. Like that wasn't the issue. And and um, Greg Brown in North Dakota and Will Harris in Georgia, they aren't doing it for global warming. They're they're doing it because they love the land and they just want the land to be better. And so it doesn't matter to me what you believe in that regard. It's um uh, you, you, you know, you're doing it because you want to do it, because <laughs> you like better land and better soil and better food and healthy animals, you know, so regenerative agriculture does all that. Um, I happen to get into it from the climate side. That's just sort of how I sort of stumbled in on this. But um, and, and climate is still the main sort of um issue that the policy people want to talk about. So everything is under that climate umbrella. Um, so, so it creates an opportunity to talk about regenerative agriculture. But then you can talk about food security and water security and watersheds and, and, and drought resilience and reducing floods and, you know, and all those other topics that you really want to talk about anyway the the climate umbrella just sort of creates entree for them. So was that sort that's, of a good, a good enough sort of background? Yeah, that's beautiful. I appreciate you painting that context for each of us. Um, uh, you know, we're kind of, I would say most of us here are producers at some level. And um, yeah, if you want to just go ahead and type in the chat, you know, are you currently farming? Are you an aspiring farmer or a rancher? Um, what's your involvement in agriculture? And then also if you have any specific intentions or um, if you're bringing maybe some weighty questions here, 
I think for a lot of us in these uncertain times, you know, one of the questions is, you know, are, are, is our business model really viable? Um, commodity prices have been high. It looks like we're going to have another good year. But, uh, but that's, always a, that's always a question kind of in the back of everybody's mind that I talk to. You know, are you planning to be profitable this year? And, and so, Seth, um, just, yeah, feel free to go ahead and dive in. Do you have some slides that you want to yeah. share? Do you want to share screen? And, and uh, for those of you who are on the podcast, we'll kind of walk through, you know, what's, sure. what, what, what's going on here. But um, feel free to jump right in. Yeah, so you know, I have a pretty extensive deck. It can get pretty nerdy. Um, you know, I'm into the science, um, but I think you all can can deal with that. But um, you know, let me just start to kick it around, you know, and and see where we go. But my main focus, just in general, sort of when I create my presentation. It's really geared toward the academics and the policy types who are going to be suspicious that grazing and ruminants can be a climate solution. That's my typical audience. Um, When I'm speaking to, you know, this group of people who are already producers, to some extent, that's not necessary, you know, but, but. I want you to kind of know the science anyway. But but my typical disposition is that I'm talking to an academic or a policy type who who is completely bought in on global warming, but is suspicious that grazing can in any way be a solution. So that's sort of my typical um, uh, framework. Um, yeah. But anyway, is so that, not to digress, but um, just again, to paint more of a context, is that coming from academia, the belief that cows are a causal factor of climate change and global warming? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, I don't even I don't even want to get it. You know, that's where I start getting frustrated. So so let me just just jump into the science here. So so the talk that I give, and I give it in academic session uh, context. I mean, I've given this talk to the WWF, you know, with with scholars and PhDs and and you know at universities and stuff. So it has to be really sharp, and the science has to be solid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I talk here about the role of ruminants in reversing global warming, notice I don't say that the ruminants are reversing global warming but they have a role. And the role, of course, is in sustaining this ecosystem function. And the ecosystem function itself is what mitigates, if not reverses global warming, or basically keeps the temperature of the climate more or less stable before we started burning fossil fuels. So, you know, these are the chemical uh, equations. This is methane, carbon dioxide, and water. And all three of these factors are regulated in a positive way through the proper use of ruminants or a megafauna grazing animal in an ecosystem. Okay, so it's the ecosystem itself which is regulating the climate, but the ruminants are an essential part of that. Um, the CO2 is drawn down uh, into the soil and into the plant biomass. That's sort of sort of a given. Most people can kind of understand that. Um, let's talk about water for a second. Well, obviously, I think you all know intuitively anyway that better soil holds more water and quite a bit, by the way. Um, each 1% of soil organic matter or SOM holds an additional 20,000 gallons of water per acre, 20,000 gallons. So in other words, if your soil is 3% SOM and someone else's soil is 4% SOM, that person's, that other person's soil will hold 20,000 gallons 
more water per acre than yours. So it's profound. Once you start improving soil, organic matter, the water holding capacity of it starts to go way up. This one here is methane, CH4. This is a little more confusing for people. They always say, well, cows produce methane. Well, of course they do. Methane is a natural part of the digestion of cellulose. Grasshoppers produce methane. You know, if you have plant matter, it has to be digested or burned, right? Those are the choices. Um, or, or it just oxidizes and becomes desert. Okay, so, so yes, cows or any creature that's eating cellulose is going to produce methane. But the ecosystem itself, again, will, rec will regulate methane in the same way it regulates carbon and water. And the way it does that is there's something called methanotrophs in the soil. That's bacteria that they literally eat methane. Um, and, but most, most methane is reduced or mitigated or, um, um, in the atmosphere and the presence of other atmospheric chemicals. This gets nerdy here. There's something called a hydroxyl radical and water vapor. Anyway, water vapor is sort of the key element that also has to be in the atmosphere near methane for it to get reduced naturally anyway. So in a system like this, that is transpiring water, that's holding and transpiring water, the methane reduction will be greater anyway. So you see this, a healthy ecosystem will naturally be reducing the methane that the ruminants are producing. It will naturally be in balance. And you can increase the number of ruminants if you're doing so in a way which is also improving the ecosystem, right? If you're, if you're grazing them in a way which is making more grass and more grass has more leaves, which is transpiring more water vapor, well, that will also be reducing the extra methane. So that system is in balance. You know, uh, naturally, of course, it would be in balance if they were wild ruminants with predators. But in under, under human management, it's also in balance when they're being moved in the proper way. Um, and that, in some sense, that's, you know, the whole presentation right there. But, you know, just to, to go on, um, I just like to show this picture as kind of like a gestalt Um the holism, it's obviously sort of one thing, right? You see this, you just see the earth. You don't see, well, there's water and clouds and land and different kind of land, but you get a sense it's just one thing, this notion of holism. What's really cool is that this picture was taken 51 years ago. This picture was taken in 1972. Can you believe that? That was 51 years ago. Um. That just sort of blows my mind. I remember when this picture came out. I was, you know, 11, 12, whatever. It was black and white on the cover of the New York Times. I remember it. Um, but now there's this picture. And, and if, if we could say like this picture was sort of the theme of the climate movement for the last 50 years, I'd, I'd like this picture to be the theme of the climate movement for the next 50 years. For me, this is this is the gestalt. This is this picture needs to be everywhere. Every UN meeting I go to, every climate meeting, I just want them to see this picture. A lot of people here, you probably already know the the backstory on this. This is the Kroon family ranch in the Karoo region of South Africa. On the left, they're doing holistic plan grazing. I think Sam Kroon was the father, and Ronald is the son, and Sam was a a colleague, a peer of Alan Savory. So one of the earliest adopters of the holistic plan grazing method. And then on, on the right, you just see the typical situation now, which is everywhere. I mean, it's just everywhere. This is just a typical situation in all of Southern Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Sudan. It's just, just horrifying. And people think that's how it's supposed to be. 
That's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like this, even better, with with innumerable amount of animals going on it. And then the typical situation is that, I mean, it, this happens to me all the time. I'll go, I go to a UN meeting and I'll show them this picture and I'll say to someone who's just a staff scientist at an NGO somewhere or, you know, a middle level policy guy for some government, you know, the typical person you meet at a UN meeting. And I'll say, well, how do you think the left side got to be that way? And they'll say, I, I swear to God, oh, they, they removed the cows. That's that's the typical answer that, oh, they removed the cows. That's why the grass came back. <laughs> say, no, <laughs> they brought in the cows. Actually, in this case, sheep. So there's there's, you know, four to five times the animal density on the left side is on the right. Um, and. And, and you know, sometimes people joke, they say, there wasn't a one blade of grass. Well, there really is not a single blade of grass on the right side. There's not one blade of grass on, anywhere in view on the right side. Not a single blade of grass. Uh, you can't make this stuff up. Here's how it looks on Google Earth Pro. And... Um, I just feel like everyone just needs to see this. And and when I hear the the normal, you know, sort of anti-livestock type saying, oh, there's no evidence that this works. Well, I guess Google Earth didn't get that memo because you can see it from space. And there's more and more pictures like this. Um, so on one hand, this is ammunition for you guys because you guys are the producers. But. But my typical thing is I'm trying to convince, you know, the naysayer policy types that this is that this is legit. Um, and then we talk about grasslands as, you know, the the largest terrestrial ecosystem type. This isn't such a great graph. Um, oh, and they love carbon. This is really sort of the better one. This is the Alan Savory actually showed this slide during his TED talk. This one gives you a good sense of it. We're basically most of the world is a is a is I is a semi-arid seasonal rainfall environment. Most of the world is actually like that. The temperate forests, the green areas of the world are really more of an exception. Most of the world is in some type of grassland, semi-arid seasonal rainfall environment for which it used to be a healthy grassland and there and there used to be just this prodigious amount of animals. And the animals, of course, are what moves the moisture over the landscape during the dry season. That's why you have to have the animals. They keep the landscape moist during the sometimes eight months of the year when there's no rain. They go to where the water is and then they move on, right? So these systems co-evolved with animals and animals are essential. Here's just some more sort of soil carbon science. Um, never mind the, the right side, just look on the left side here for a second. These numbers here are billions of tons of carbon, okay? So you see where it says plant biomass 550, that's 550 billion tons of carbon in plant biomass. Then you see it says atmosphere 800, 800 billion tons of carbon. And you see it says soil 2300. So there's more carbon in soil than in plant biomass and the atmosphere combined by a big amount. On that one, Seth, um... So current science, or at least what I'm hearing from the carbon credit side, is that the oceans are where the real credits lie, meaning that they have the ability to capture more carbon. But are, is, are you saying that you this this is not proving that, or am I reading this wrong? Well, no. This is this is a this is a snapshot of sort of the world, you know, how it is right now. Um, and there is there is a lot of uptake of carbon into the oceans, but but it will off gas. It will naturally off gas um, once it starts getting stored 
in plant biomass. So, so, so soil or plant biomass is where the reservoir of the carbon sort of wants to go. You don't really want the uptake in the oceans because it dissolves and becomes carbonic acid. And that's the bad thing that dissolves shells. So you, you don't want carbon uptake in the oceans and you don't want it in the sky, but you want it in plant biomass or in soil. That's where you want it. And so you want land management practices that improve these things. And you want it there anyway, even if you don't believe in global warming. Um, so, so not on this graph is uh, fossil carbon. If it were, it would be around 10,000. So the majority of the carbon is uh, in oil and coal and gas, but we call that fossil carbon. That's not part of the carbon cycle. You know, that's permanently sequestered. It would stay there forever if humans weren't mining it. But in terms of the carbon cycle, um, the vast majority of it is in soil. Um, and then you can literally see it. I mean, that's why soil is dark. It's literally, it's the carbon that makes it dark. The graphite, think of your pencils. Um, think of, you know, better soil is darker. Um, and this is a this is from an exhibit called Exposed to Secret Life of Roots by the National Botanical Garden, uh, U.S. Botanical Society. Um, and, you know, this was just a photographic cross-section, but these are real, real perennial grasses. And you can see they're even folded. See those folds there? <laughs> because it would be too tall. You know, it's just showing how deep the A horizon there is, or could be, or should be, or was, or used to be before it all got plowed up and turned into corn and soy and whatever. Um, and then, so we had an animal continent. Um, then there was this horrific period, you know, at the end of the uh, 18th century, 19th century, I get these things. And the 19th century, when, um, when the U.S. government was intentionally killing buffalo for a variety of, you know, horrible reasons. Um, but what they didn't expect to happen was this, the Dust Bowls, which came in about 30 years later. Now, you know, they were also beginning unsustainable farming practices, but clearly the devastation, the beginning of desertification in the U.S., was the elimination of 70 million large ruminants. And, um, you, you, you know, if it weren't for fertilizer and irrigation, there would be nothing in the, I mean, it would all be sand at this point. Everything basically, you know, west of the Mississippi would just be sand. Uh, the ruminants are what made the soil possible. Let me explain this. Um, let me know if it's getting a little too nerdy here, but I kind of want you guys to understand this. This is the stuff that makes me like really, <laughs> you know, get into this. This is kind of the kind of cosmic picture here. This is a 500 million year chart on both the top one and the bottom one are both 500 million years or half a billion years of the Earth's temperature history. Okay, so this is a 500 million year graph of the Earth's temperature history. So at the top here, you have degrees in centigrade. Um, so what they call the hot house is like around 28 degrees centigrade. And what they call the ice house is around 13 degrees centigrade. It's not, it's not technically the ice house, but anyway, that's just sort of the, like the loosey-goosey terms. Um, but what you can sort of see is there's been basically three profound cooling periods over 500 million years. And basically three profound cooling periods. It's sort of three and a half. There's sort of this middle cooling period here. But this one, like 450 million years ago, and then and then between 200 and 300 million years ago, and then there's sort of a recent one, 50 million years ago. Um, now, 
um, the bottom graph is the same amount of time, but it's not equal spacing. This is called a logarithmic graph. So this entire 50 million year part here is represented in all of this here. See what's going on? The bottom graph is favoring the present. It's more emphasis on the present. So these are 100 million year units here, and then 10 million year units, and then 1 million year units, and then 200,000 years, and then 5,000 years. Okay, so we'll get back to that in a second. So there were basically, there's basically been four sort of profound uh, biological evolutionary developments in, in the last 500 million years that profoundly cooled the planet. One was literally just the evolution of life on land, the beginning of mosses and what's called liverworts on land um, cooled the planet. So plant biology cools the planet. And it was literally the um, the biomass of the plants themselves, as well as the plants beginning to dissolve the rocks. Those are both um, processes that take carbon dioxide out of the air. And even today, they talk about creating um, uh, concrete in a way to help cool the planet. I think that's sort of absurd. But, but anyway... Um, that was that evolution. Then the next evolution or innovation in evolution. Um, okay, so so these these were called non-vascular plants. And then about um, around 400 million years ago, there's the evolution of what's called vascular plants. So uh, basically, the the the, uh, the molecule lignin, the what evolved. And plants are like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> we can have structure now. We can grow up and we can grow down. And so the evolution of forests and fern forests um, happened uh, during this period. And it was profound. These forests were all over the world. And there was nothing to digest them. The evolution hadn't figured out how to digest lignin yet. The first um, fungus to digest trees um, shows up around here. So there was all this massive accumulation of biomass that was cooling the planet, and it wasn't being digested. It wasn't being put back into the atmosphere. So it just accumulated to cool the planet, and it was laying on top of each other, and it and it 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 fossilized and fermented, and it basically this period is now known as the Carboniferous period, and all of the coal and gas and oil in the world that we drill for, all of it is literally this ancient biology. It's this biology that wasn't fermented, I mean, that wasn't digested and re, um, um, respired back into the atmosphere. So you're, you were literally burning the biomass of this ancient atmosphere, this ancient cooling. Um, now, this period here, this was the evolution of flowering plants. And flowering plants had a huge evolutionary advantage which they created some cooling but what i want to get to here is this period which begins about 50 million years ago and can i just sort of open it up for a little bit like what do people think was the profound sort of biological innovation that began to happen around 50 million years which really created the greatest cooling the planet has seen you know in the last 400 million years or so can can we open it up just for fun? What do people think yeah. happened here? Oh, did I give it away? Oh, <laughs> I may have just given it away. Did you see that? Uh, go for it. Anybody want to unmute and guess what happened? Humans? Were you oh, just humans, humans, humans come much, much later. We just saw a buffalo there. Yeah, yeah, we come this line. All right, well, I kind of gave it away. All right. So it's Her the evolution. It's a, well, herbivores existed. But it, but you didn't have ruminants. You didn't have ruminants and ungulates, and you didn't have grasslands. So grasslands and ruminants created a new type of soil called a mollusol. Mollusol literally it means soft soil. And when you think of agricultural soil, for the most part, you know the good thick. Deep, you know, it's like the pictures I showed you or before from that ex exhibit, um, exposed the secret life of roots, Middle America. 
the Ukraine, you know, basically the best soils in the world are mollusols, okay? This whole system of the ruminants and the grass and the soils all began to evolve about 50 million years ago, and it created this profound cooling. And then when you look at it like this, when you expand it over time, this is what's going on here. You're getting the ruminants and the grasses and the mollusols, and you're getting this profound cooling. And that's like the big picture. That's sort of the big cosmic picture, if you will. There's been three great cooling periods over, over a half a billion years. And for the most part, we're still in this period. I mean, we're doing everything we can to screw things up. But this is the story. So the question as to whether or not ruminants could help cool the planet, well, they've been helping to cool the planet for 50 million years. And, and it's, it's because of their cooling effect in combination with the grasses and the soils that human evolution happened in the first place because that's what created the grasslands, put the pressure on the forests. The grasslands became the dominant ecosystem. You could almost think of grasslands and forests sort of competing for space on land. And, and the grasslands more or less won, and for the most part, and the reason they won is because of the animals. The animals sort of are working in, you know, in, in teamwork with the grasses to push against the forest. Um, and, and, okay, then you going down here at the bottom, you got the ice ages, then you have modern agriculture, that's just sort of well, the last 10,000 years, and then you just have the current, you know, the factory and the farming, the in, current industrialization. So in terms of evolutionary time or geologic time, our modern period of humans and factory farming and, and factory animal management, you know, cows and pigs and these concentrated feeding operations, that's not even, you know, that's not even a fraction of a second in terms of evolutionary geologic time. Now, is that bad? Well, of course that's bad. It's bad because you're taking the factory model, which is good at producing things like phones, you know, and, and whatever, and, and devices, and you're trying to apply it to food and ecosystem function. That's what's horrifying. It's not that meat is horrifying or cows or whatever. That whole system is horrifying. Those same cows or sheep, or goats, or pigs, or chickens can and need to be in the pasture to keep this cooling happening. And so that's the essential thesis. Are ruminants essential for global cooling? Absolutely. They're what made global cooling possible in the last 50 million years in the first place. So in, in some sense, you know, I know it's already time practically to wrap up, but that's go, that's go ahead, to, give her give her like ten more minutes, and you know that that's the general sort of cosmic scientific argument. Um, and then just digging a little deeper into, you know, into what this looks like over time. So again, this is fifty million years. So grasslands begin to compete with forests and their weapon are these animals because the animals can push against the forest and can start to spread the grassland seeds and then they start to build the soil and the soil gets deeper and deeper. So this is, this is that story. And then, um, oh God, I don't want to get too wonky here. I might just skip that, but 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 so now here's the so the mollusol is that new type of soil from an evolutionary perspective that's fairly recent you know what we consider that nice deep dark soil that's kind of a new thing you know from from evolutionary you know ge geographic geological time frames but but look at where it all was i mean iowa right? 
Kansas, Nebraska, or Nebraska, Kansas, North, South Dakota. And these areas, you know, this is all in soy and corn now. There's almost no topsoil left at all. And this was some of the best soil in the world. But now you have Gabe Brown in North Dakota, right? Recreating soil there. You have people starting to do the right thing. They're pushing against just the soy, corn, rapeseed model. They're trying to bring grazing back and they're recreating soil. Um, so Seth, me, with, yeah. with that, um, you know, we kind of know geologic time, how long it takes to build soil. But what is your data showing through proper regenerative practices? Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I get kind of hung up on all that, you know, wonky historic science. But as you can see, um, the the soil can be restored fairly quickly. You know, once you start doing the holistic plan grazing, you know, I'll just kind of fly through here. You see here, there's a millipede. You've got fungus. You've got a very healthy ecosystem here. You've got, you've got a hot, it's called a high um, panica maximum. Anyway, um, you know, I have just have so many slides of the restoration, but the restoration can happen very quickly. Oh, yeah, here's, uh, you may have seen these. This is Alejandro Carreros in, uh, in Mexico. Chihuahua. Yeah, in the Chihuahua region there. You know, you can see a profound transformation. And I mean, it's going to take a decade. Um but it doesn't, it doesn't stop. I mean, it just keeps getting better and better. But within a decade or two, you can see profound changes. Yeah. Uh, and so really what so, is it? Yeah, you know, thank you. And, thank you for asking that question. Cause yes, there's the cosmic 500 year story, but then there's, you know, the immediate story as well. And then, um, you know, so here are some of the practitioners, this paper, um, this is, I think, from Roundtree um, 2020. Um, this this was the study they did at White Oak Pastures in Georgia, um, year zero, years one to three, years three plus, and then um, and then you and then so these pictures were all taken at the same time, but they were taken at plots that had been in the management for different amounts of time, and. This is this unfortunately is the typical situation now. Again, there's no grass, right? That's all just woody brush and sand. Bare ground. And then here's your sort of intermediate. And then here's your advanced. And this is all the same ranch. I mean, these plots are walking distance from each other. Mm -hmm. um, um, so there's a lot of good research starting to go on now. Um, Here's Will. <laughs> He's a conservative guy. He's not doing it for climate. Um, <laughs> He's a capitalist. You know, uh, here's me on Will's property. Look at this topsoil that he built. Awesome. Now, here's his neighbor. The neighbor is in cotton or peanuts. You know, like everyone else in Georgia. But you can see the neighbor. The neighbor has no topsoil at all. That's just that. Can you see the mouse moving there? Yes. Yeah. So basically they're farming subsoil is what you're saying. Exactly. 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 I mean, you can almost, you can almost visually see that the soil is higher on the left than on the right. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, um, and then here's where I know you guys are interested in profit and economics and stuff like this. So yeah, that was the whole science side, but uh you know, on the whole economic side, so now you're getting um, a energy siting, solar power and wind power siting. And then they're trying to say, look, that's where the money is, leasing the land for the utilities. But how's this land going to be maintained? Mm -hmm. It's either going to be on concrete or you're going to have a traditional land um, maintenance service where the guys on the, you know, on the on the mowers or robotic mowers and glyphosate right or you're grazing right those are the choices either it's on concrete or you hire traditional land 
maintenance company what's just going to be you know with mowers and glyphosate or yet you're doing some kind of grazing and this is again this is will harris it's a little side project and to to make things even more just sort of ironic or whatever um this is a solar panel this is a to power um uh to help power a data center that's owned by facebook is that right so according to will this is a solar this is utility to help power a data center owned by facebook and you know and it's it's an experiment you know the utility company doesn't have to hire will to graze there they could just get a regular land maintenance company but you know that's what he's doing that's like a side project to get a little income so anyway um awesome you know i i know you guys are interested on the economics of this and um i can uh if you want to just real quick um hang on a second here um yeah maybe just, maybe just share a little bit on there and then also let the share how people stay in touch with you seth what's the best way to stay connected with you and um where can they where can they find you well you know facebook linkedin whatever um this was a presentation i gave recently um for another organization but i am you guys know about the savory institute i'm sure and um so the savory institute um has a program they call land to market and so they're partnering they say they've got 80 brands affiliated with them now a thousand plus products um so, you know, here are some of the brands and the products that they say are being affiliated with them. I think even Timberland, I seem to remember that Timberland has a boot that's coming out that's going to be sourced by regen producers. And then they have their whole, whole verification protocol. They call it ecological outcome verification. They've got something like 40 variables. Okay, so yeah. you guys saw that. All right, I'll 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 stop that now. You get the... Yeah, that. that's perfect. Yeah. Um, perfect. Thank you, Tony. And just um, just for your information, our ranch has been three years enrolled with ecological outcome verification with the Savory Institute. Oh, okay, all right. So we manage total of about twenty four thousand acres. That's that is um, a land to market. You'll be verified, and so uh, hopefully we're getting some data and we're establishing some trends. And, you know, I, the best time to start monitoring is probably 50 years ago. The second best time is today. So if you don't worry, if you haven't started, today's a great time to start um, and, and highly endorse the land to market program. So, so yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll just share a little bit about what we do with Ag Steward, and then we'll go back to Q&A with Seth and with me and anybody who wants to unmute, just kind of either... I know there were some questions that came in in the chat. We'll probably give those priority and then um, you can raise your virtual hand or just go ahead and unmute and ask your question of Seth. Um, so with Ag Steward, for those of you who are new to this group, we welcome you. We do these webinars every second and fourth Thursday, four o'clock Pacific time. And these are the caliber of speakers that we like to have on. Um, Seth is... Uh, the reason that I reached out to him is because I know he knows the science behind it. And I think that's important that we understand that because um, if we, if we are, if we can only see one side of the coin, we cannot one have empathy for the people that we converse with, but I don't think we can come to understanding. And many of the people who we might term as um, environmentalists who maybe in a previous generation or our current generation we see as the enemy when it comes down to it we probably have a lot more in common with them than we do difference if we remove the titles and we remove our ego principally and we have a conversation and we look for what they want and we look for what we want i would say there's a lot more in common and so um yeah i, I am an environmentalist because i care about the environment but I don't have an agenda other than helping to sequester carbon, helping to grow healthy food and showing the way for others to be able to do that as well. If you're going to be truly objective, you have to see 
both sides of the coin and realize that probably the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? There's actually three sides to the coin. There's heads, tails, and the side. Being able to stand on that side and see both sides, that's where you put you in a position of power to be able to really understand the truth of things as they are. And I really like in the holistic management context is when you when you make a decision, you have the assumption that you might be wrong when you go into it. And you're going to test, measure, adjust, and see if your assumption, your hypothesis is right. Um, not just say, well, this is the way it's always been done. So therefore, this is the way that it has to be done. Um, and that takes a large dose of humility. Uh, something that is uh, pride is can be the downfall, right? But if we can accept that, hey, maybe I don't see the things exactly as they are, it helps us to, to have a more objective viewpoint. And it really helps in our management, I would say, as well. So um, today I did a TikTok. I am like two months into, almost two full months into TikTok. And let me tell you, that's been a push for me, something very uncomfortable. The people that I coach, I encourage them to stretch themselves and do things that are uncomfortable. And I ask them to do it. I got to lead the way. So so I went live today on TikTok and uh, started the first of first of February. And we talked about not only this um, this webinar, but I also did another one um, just sharing sharing a story. And so I encourage you to check out the Resilient Rancher on TikTok. Um, something that I've come to realize is that part of our core um, maybe our soul carbon, S-O-U-L carbon, is the message that we have inside of us. And the more that we can share that message, uh, the more it grows, the more it flourishes, uh, the more we can get it out there, the more it can photosynthesize, to use the ecological analogy, and the more it serves us. And so maybe I'm selfish in sharing this, wanting to share this message and, and associate with these good people. But, you know, as I've been able to do that, I've seen that my message inside of me has grown. And part of that core message is that, um, again, being vulnerable and being able to share the good and the bad, um, the things that I've learned from so that others can learn from those experiences. You know, there was a time in my life when I, I was about ready, I was ready to give up on ranching. It was super hard. Like the reason I've chosen profitability is because that has been my biggest pain point for me. And uh, several years ago, you know, we just had looked at the numbers inside, outside, upside down from every angle. And we thought, you know, this just isn't working. We're opposed to government subsidies. Um, we are striving to manage from an organic um, perspective. And it just seemed like, you know, we can't do it using our paradigms we can't do it using our self-imposed criteria under which we're going to manage and then on top of that we started hearing nicole masters and others teaching about um this same message here that really the what we are managing is not livestock not grass but it's the soil and the microbes in the life life in the soil so i um it changed my paradigm and i realized and at that kind of low point when i was ready to quit um, I was so close to the problem that I couldn't see objectively. And one of my mentors teaches that proximity creates reality. Like if you put a dot on a page and you hold that page up to your nose, all you can see is the dot. So sometimes you have to step away. And sometimes you have to get an outside perspective to be able to, to gain objectivity about the issue that you're facing. And for me, that's what worked for me, was building a team, having mentors, and being able to humble myself enough that I could see that the solutions were actually around me and very much inside of me, right? I didn't have to look out there for the answers. I had to look inside and also look up for the answers. And as I did that, um, the, the answers started to come. And I realized that, you know, this is something that I love. The very thing that I had inherited from my grandparents, my parents, the thing that I had come to feel was a millstone around my neck I realized it was actually that weight that I was carrying was making me stronger and now I have a ton of empathy when I coach other people who are going through financial struggles emotional challenges it's like I've been there you know I know what it's like but I also know what it's like on the other side to come out of that 
and to be able to breathe again, to be able to see again, to be able to um, experience the joys of this life that I do love, that I do love. And so I wanted to share with each of you um, a short uh, assessment, I guess you'd call it, and, and an invitation along with that. I wish it had a catchy URL. And we'll get something on the podcast notes for those of you who are there. So you go through, you fill out this short assessment, and then we'll go through it together. And we'll see. I've had people reaching out and wanting to know, like, what's it like to coach with Ag Steward? Um, we've got a young couple from Iowa. Um, I'll share. We're going to load. They're going to load their video on this page once we get it um, edited a little bit. But, you know, he's a lifetime third generation farmer. He's like, he sometimes he just wakes up and tells his wife, I'm, we we hired a coach. He just kind of looks himself in the mirror. He shakes his head like it's so new to us in agriculture. Right. But other businesses, that's what differentiates them from, uh, you know, just want to be businesses is they actually they look for somebody who can give them that perspective. And that's my goal with this. Um, and so to incentivize, I like people to take action that commit and that do. And uh, for the first three people that come through, I guess I get an email as soon as you filled that out. Um, if you're interested in that, and again, the, perp the, the reason to do this, the why behind this is, um, you know, this is a $500 value to have somebody. So you fill out the assessment, that's part of it. Everybody fills out assessments, but then it's, it's actually, we will go through this over a Zoom call, and we're going to look and we're going to analyze where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, where your opportunities are, and maybe those things that you might be blind to because your problem is staring you right in the face. Yep. So that objectivity, and then if it's right to work together, um, we'll we'll explore what that looks like. But uh, so this is a five hundred dollar value because you showed up on the on the um, webinar today. I'm offering it for free and incentivize those who are action takers. I wrote a book. It's kind of a cool book. Sorry, it's a little blurry. Searching for Home, Finding Grace. So I know a few of you on this call have read it. Um, Tony talked about it last time. I really appreciate that, um, his endorsement of that. But the first three people, I'll send them a copy of my book and I'll sign it and send it to you. Um, love to love to explore what it's like to work together with Ag Steward. Um, the people that we coach, it's so rewarding to see when like, I don't give them the answers. I'll just ask them the questions and they begin to see like, hey, you know, we actually do have some opportunities that are right here that we didn't recognize before. One individual was willing to pay a million dollars in capital gains tax because he thought he had to, because his CPA told him he had to. And I challenged that. I said, I, I'm not a CPA, but let me ask some questions. And we got some like, again, I don't have to have all the answers, but I led him to the person who said, no, you don't have to do that. If you want to sell this land and you want to keep that money and use it for other purposes, you can. If you want to give it to the government, that's your prerogative, but you don't have to. So again, maybe seeing those things um, will be helpful to you and to your business because the mission of Ag Steward is to help family farmers and ranchers become highly profitable and regenerate the land that they steward. To be able to pass that land on to the next generation with a viable and a profitable business so that it's not a millstone around your kid's neck. It's something that they can enjoy if they so choose or whoever that next generation is. So if you've enjoyed this, feel free to share the word about the upcoming webinars. If you could find me on LinkedIn and just, you know, put in a good word for me, um, I'd really appreciate that. Yep. And you've got a huge following on Facebook as well. But, um, but yeah, for those of you that are on LinkedIn, check him out there. Uh, so LinkedIn, just search for soil for climate. Yeah. It's off of climate and, and me set that's can. And, you know, I mean, uh, Carl's very modest. He's never asked for this, but if, you know, uh, a, a lot of my science, frankly, <laughs> Carl helps me uh, figure out. He has a degree in chemistry. Okay. My degree was in engineering. So between the two of us, we tend to figure stuff out. Well, that's perfect. Yep. So definitely look him up on on social media, specifically LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, just just give a review to 
um, this webinar as well on there. That'd be great. That'll add some credibility. The more you post, if right. you didn't like it, you can post that too, because all things it works, the algorithm. So right, um, right. it's all good. <laughs> Seth, thank you so much. All right. Thank Over. you. Grateful to have you. Yeah. Okay. Take care, everybody. This was a good time. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on the Profitable Steward Podcast. Want to learn more about making your enterprise more profitable? Check out AgSteward on our website, www.agsteward.fyi. Here at AgSteward, we're working hard to make sure you have the latest tools and knowledge from the field of regenerative agriculture. Subscribe to our podcast to keep up with the latest info and help us spread the word by giving this video a thumbs up sharing this information with other farmers, and as always, please join the conversation by leaving us a rating and a review so we can help you to keep growing strong.